0: to the Venue podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering of Southcrest Baptist Church. To learn more about the Venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to talk about the three magi. One little boy came home excited. He got a part in the Christmas play. She asked her son, what part did you get? And he said, I'm one of the three wise guys. We're going to look at the three wise guys today. By the way, uh, several years ago when the ACLU was suing our state government for having a nativity scene at the state capitol, Molly Evans, who wrote a paper, a column in the paper, basically was asking, calling around a few of the uh, legislators to see what they thought, and she called the the state treasurer. And the treasurer said this, I really hate for them to to take away the nativity scene, the Creech, from the state capitol because this may be the only time that we have three wise men on the capitol grounds. I just wanted to see if you're with me today. Let's read about the three wise guys. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. We're going to talk about worship part of the time today. Would you, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to see the truth, to, to completely understand what it means when we come to worship and honor you because it's all about you, God. And help us to grasp that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The American Heritage Dictionary defines worship this way. The reverent love and allegiance accorded or given to a deity, an idol, or a sacred object. In the Greek New Testament, the words for worship combine the idea of falling down before something or honoring them or giving allegiance, paying homage to, or serving. And so, from those definitions, when you hear the word worship, what it means is we recognize who we are with God. I mean, God is God, and we're not. We are the creation. God is king. We are the subjects. We are here to honor him and him alone. And to worship means that God is the center, the focus of it. Let me read you a passage out of 1 Chronicles 29 that really gives you a biblical example of worship. Listen to what David says. Praise be to you, O Lord God, our Father Israel, from everlasting A lot of people today misunderstand the purpose for congregational worship and as a result of that many churches are dying today because they don't put the right emphasis on the right reason for worship for example there are a lot of people who think worship is about them and there are several reasons that we have a misconception about worship today first of all in our culture in our culture, we want everything instantly, don't we? I mean, let's just face it. You, you, you get impatient now when you go to a fast food restaurant because they're not fast enough, are they? And can you imagine now if you're, if you're uh, surfing on the web or, or using your phone and you're looking at things, and if that, if that website doesn't come up instantly, you're already someplace else, aren't you? If you get the little wheel for more than three seconds, you're done with that one. I'm not going there. We are so impatient, and yet the Bible tells us that we are to wait on the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 1 said, I waited patiently. On the Lord Psalm 37 7 talks about waiting patiently but we're not very good waiters anymore are we and so we come in we want it instantly it's almost like if I walk in the door I'm instantly ready to worship another reason is imbalance you see really there's three parts to worship there's intellectual you got to know who God is and that's why we, we teach the truth with the more you learn from the Bible. And I know Brandon teaches you the truth. I listen to the podcast every week to, to see what's being taught. And, and eventually we're going to be on the same page. We're going to be covering the same uh, subjects. We're going to get past Christmas, and then we'll do that together. But the fact is, the more you learn about God, you've got to have the intellect. But it's more than just intellect because there's also an emotional side. And, and because some people are all emotion. Do you, you know anybody like that? You know anybody that's just the most emotional person you've ever seen? I mean, they get excited about cereal. They're just excited about everything. They're just emotional. Well, because of that, we have a tendency to go the other direction because we don't want to be labeled one of those real emotional people. But... But to tell you the truth, when you think about what God has done for us by coming to us and dying on the cross for us and paying a price that we could not pay, there has to be some emotion in it. If your heart's not ever moved, then you hadn't worshiped. But there's also a volitional part of worship that says, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. So you you have this balance here. It's, It's intellect, it's emotion, and it's volition, it's will. All of that goes together, but because of our culture, there seems to be an imbalance there from time to time. And also, did you realize that another reason that a lot of people don't worship today is because of lack of personal worship. Now, you don't walk around singing hymns all the time, but do you have the attitude when you're going through your daily life, God, you've been so good to me. You've given me so much. I, I'm, I'm grateful today that I, I have the ability to walk. I'm grateful today that I have health to be out. If you don't have some kind of God consciousness about you during the week, then I can promise you when you walk in these doors on Sunday morning at 930 and you walk in here, you're not going to worship the Lord all of a sudden. You don't just automatically, boom, I'm in the worship mode. Because if you don't have any private worship and private gratitude and private thanks, then you're not going to have it when you come to church. So because of that, I want us to look for a moment at the models, I call them the models, of the magi. (laughs) You know, I I had a person tell me one time, you're a model preacher. I felt so great until I looked up the word model. The definition means a small imitation of the real thing. (laughs) <laughs> so that kind of put me back down to size, but here we 're talking about an example, a real a model to follow, an example to follow and you know and, and anytime you have christmas it 's always fun when children are involved, and you have children and and they sometimes don't get all of the terminology and One lady was reading the Christmas story, and she got to the Matthew account, and these were preschool kids and <laughs> And she was reading the story of Jesus' birth to her daycare. And as usual, she stopped to see if they understood. And so she asked the question what do we call the three wise men? And one little three year old said, the three maggots. So we're going to look at the three maggots today, the three magoi, magoi is the word, and we're going to see how they are models. The first way that I see them as an example is they are a model of seeking. Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells of a tribe called the Magi. They were similar to the Levites in Israel, but the Magi were in other countries. They they became skilled in philosophy They were skilled in medicine. They were skilled in natural science, especially astrology and astronomy. Wise men uh, comes from the word Magoi, and it says they came from the east. We assume they came from Persia. We don't know for certain. In fact, there are a lot of things we don't know about the Magi. We don't know if there were just three of them here. There could have been more. But we assume there were at least three because three gifts were given. Guess what? On your manger scenes at home, they're on what? Camels. We have no idea if they rode a camel or not. They could have come in on Arabian horses for all we know. We, so, so there's a lot of things we don't know, but it doesn't matter. I mean, if you have a camel or a horse, it doesn't matter. The point was that these magi came to worship Jesus. They came from the east. And by the way, they could have been relatives of Daniel. Daniel was carried into Babylon many, many years before. And of course, the Persians overcame the Babylonians. And they could have come. They could have been descendants or relatives of somehow to Daniel. We don't know for sure, but we do know this, that they were looking and they recognized the star that indicated the Messiah Had been born. And by the way, interestingly enough, in Luke chapter 2, you have the shepherds coming to worship at the nativity or coming to worship Jesus in the manger. They're coming to worship the Son of Man. The Magi probably came anywhere from a year to two years later because it says they came into the house and they saw the child. It doesn't matter that you have them at your nativity scene because the the point was they came to worship, but they didn't come to worship the Son of Man like the servants, I mean, the shepherds did. They came to worship the King of Kings. And so you've got two different accounts of Jesus being worshiped. But I want you to think for a moment all of the obstacles that they overcame to come worship Jesus. The first one was Herod. Now, this Herod sometimes is called Herod the Great because he built so many magnificent buildings. The temple that Jesus was involved in at the time or, you know, when he would confront people, that temple had been built by Herod the Great. There were other massive uh, structures that he built. And, and a lot of people think he was a great guy. He was actually called the king of Jews by Caesar, Augustus. But this guy, Herod, the older he got, the more insane he went. He was a madman. In fact, he, he, killed, he, he killed some of his own family thinking they were going to be heir to the throne. This is how insanely uh, paranoid that he was. He, he, he killed his firstborn son. Uh, Later before he died and he died a horrific death, but this man was a Madman, and so I want you to think for a moment the census was going on and So where was Herod's army? Herod's army was scattered all throughout Judea enforcing the census and the tax collecting and all of a sudden, you have this entourage from the east come strolling into Jerusalem so much so that all of the Jerusalem noticed. Now, these guys probably traveled about 1,000 miles, and they didn't come by themselves. They had probably had a small group of people with them to protect them. And so you've got this entourage coming into Jerusalem and they go to Herod of all things and say where is he that has been born King of the Jews now in verse 3 it says when Herod the king heard this he was troubled I want you to know it's more when when you're troubled you're distressed a little bit but this word means to be shaken To be agitated If Elvis was alive, he would sing about Herod being all shook up (laughs) and All Jerusalem with him because I mean who are these guys and King? I'm the King of the Jews and you're trying to find a child that's been born King of the Jews they they also traveled a thousand miles over rocky rough terrain They also saw his star now. I've been told I haven't counted them because I can't count that high But I've read that there are they estimate. I don't know who counted them, but they say there are 12 quadrillion solar systems and Yet one star stood out and they said that's the king of the Jews and so they overcame all of these obstacles to find Jesus today If people drive four miles to church, they complain. And and a lot of people today come with the attitude that it's just, I'm just not getting anything out of it. I'm not getting anything out of this worship. Well, I, I want you to know something. It's not about you. It's all about him. It's not about us. Some people say, well, I can't worship unless it's this way and this way. But I want to tell you something. When you come today, there are a lot of people that that don't want to worship, and I'll tell you why, especially at Christmas. Did you know that if you don't worship the rest of the year, you really can't worship at Christmas? Because it has a direct bearing. It's not like all of a sudden we're going to focus on Jesus and we're going to worship him at Christmas time. Well, if you don't worship him the rest of the time, you're not going to have any concept of worshiping him now. If you don't experience a thrill in your daily life with the Lord, then you're not going to be thrilled at Christmas time when we talk about Jesus coming. Erwin Lutzer, a pastor, a retired pastor and an author of, a, of one book for sure called Men of Integrity, said, "If we haven't learned to be worshipers, it doesn't really matter how well we do anything else because if you don't realize who God is and you don't realize where your place is in, in the system of things you're not ever going to worship Mark Horst wrote I am dismayed by the popular phrase worship experience t- to describe the church's corporate worship worship has the capacity to transform us because it focuses our hearts and minds on God. God seen in one another, in ourselves and in the world around us. However, the phrase worship experience suggests that worship is important simply because it induces feelings. In this context, worship is focused more on the worshiper than on the one worshiped. So we have to ask ourselves what a true worship experience is So if we had one, we would recognize it. A lot of people complain when they come to worship. It's too loud. It's too long. I don't ever get anything out of that sermon. I didn't like the music. Wasn't dark enough. Didn't have enough light, whatever. Have you noticed that some people say they cannot worship unless everything's a certain way? Uh, folks, I want to tell you something. It's not about you and me. But so many people think, well, if you know what, if I if I am not pleased and I am not sh- stroked enough, or I'm not encouraged enough, or whatever, then I cannot worship. Now. Some people think it always has to be a certain way or they can't worship. That won't ever happen in a Baptist church, will it? I'm not in here every Sunday, but I would bet lunch, and I'm not a betting man, I don't believe in gambling, but I would bet lunch you're sitting in the same place you always sit. The majority of you are, right? Now what if you didn't get to sit there next Sunday? Could you worship? (laughs) Of course you could. But it's amazing how many people, how many people have to have it a certain way or they can't worship. True story. The pastor of a new church was not a Baptist church. It was one of those churches that when they have communion and they have the Lord's Supper, they don't have individual cups like we do. They had one common chalice. And people would come up and drink from that chalice. They would come up, take turns. Well, this new pastor started out. It was his first Sunday to do the communion. And so he did the communion like he normally would do, but he was in a new congregation. And after church, one of the members said, you didn't do that right. And and so he asked some of his leaders, Did I not do the communion correctly? And they said, Well, not exactly. The former pastor, who had been there many years, always touched the radiator before he gave communion. He couldn't figure out, Well, what does that have to do with Scripture? So he called the former pastor. He said, is it true that you always touch the radiator before you did communion? He said, yeah. And the reason was in the wintertime, static electricity builds up. I was getting rid of the static electricity so it wouldn't shock people's lips when they touched the cup. But isn't it amazing just because he did that, everybody thought, well, it's not communion if he doesn't touch the radiator. <laughs> but you would be amazed at how many people say, well, if if I can't come at a certain time or I can't sit in a certain place or I can't have this kind of music or if I can't have this and that and th-, if they don't read out of the right translation, whatever, then I just can't worship. So we come and we go through the motions, but we don't really worship. They're a model of seeking, finding God. Listen, I hope when you come into South Crest, no matter what worship service that you participate in, that you it's all about Jesus. We keep telling you it's all about Jesus. It's not about you and me because when you worship. The second thing is they're a model of submission. Isn't it interesting that when they came into Jerusalem, they went to Herod, and said we want to find the one that's been born king of the Jews and Herod turns to all his religious leaders and said When now tell me what what's this supposed to be and all of those religious leaders immediately told him? Well, he's going to be born about six miles from here in Bethlehem And that's what the scriptures say the prophet said he'll be born in Bethlehem of, of Judea and so They immediately all these religious people knew where the king of the Jews or where the Messiah would be born But they didn't go did they in fact Herod called them privately and said Listen when you find him be sure and come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him and when these wise men the magi found Jesus, what was the first thing they did it says they fell down and worshiped him. It's a total, total opposite of pride. We sort of get the idea at times, not all of us, but sometimes, have you ever, you probably haven't, but, but there are some people who probably think, well, you know, God's so fortunate to have me here today. After all, this church would fold up if it wasn't for me. And he's so fortunate. And and, and we also come with this idea that before we ever met Jesus and were forgiven of our sins and repented of our sins and asked him to forgive us, that we were pretty much about halfway saved before he saved us. Did you know there's no such thing as being halfway saved? You're either saved or you're lost. You're forgiven or you're not. But a lot of people think, well, since I grew up in church and my parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians, that I was about half saved. No, you had a head start because you learned about Jesus at an early age. But I want you to know that whether you were raised in church or raised in the gutters of life, you're still just as much a miracle of salvation as anyone else because you were lost, separated from God, and God came down to be with us and to save us and you are just as saved as I am and it's all a miracle and we don't come with this attitude well I don't have to bow down before God because he's fortunate that I'm on his side it says they fell down I believe one day when we get to heaven when we first see Jesus our tendency is going to be to fall down because of who he is It says they fell down and they worshiped him. We can erect our nativity scenes. We can adorn the church with decorations. We can bring food for the needy. But if our hearts are cold and dry and we don't have any joy, we need to fall down beside the wise men and learn the thrill of bowing before the Savior. Where's your heart today? You've got to put your heart in it. Has nothing to do with the circumstances, Lord. I realize who you are, and I give you my heart. Barbara McKeever, Urbana, Ohio, wrote this. She said, in the middle of a solo's number, a member was singing a solo. In the middle of the soloist number at church, my young grandson Chandler. Leaned over to me and said, She can't sing very well, can she? And I knew this lady who was singing and I knew her heart and she had a deep love for Jesus. And I said, Chandler, she sings from her heart. That's what makes it good. Chandler nodded thoughtfully. Several days later, Barbara said, we were singing along, driving down the highway, singing along with the car radio, and Chandler stopped and said, Nana, you sing from your heart, don't you? <laughs> I want to tell you, it doesn't matter the noise or the sound that you make. The Lord looks at our heart, and when you've been saved, he puts a song of redeem, of redemption. He, he puts a uh, something in your heart. You will be your heart will be stirred when you worship the, the fact that God loves you the fact that God cares about you Oswald Chambers Wrote beware of worshiping Jesus as the son of God and professing your faith in him as the Savior of the world while you blaspheme him by the complete evidence in your daily life that he is powerless to do anything in and through you. Isn't that interesting? We our worship it's not about going through the motions. It's not about being entertained. It's all about focusing on the Lord. Interestingly enough, this is a true story too. Pastor Dave Charlton. He said at First Baptist Church in Newcastle, Kentucky, a mother with a fidgety seven year old boy told me how she finally got her son to sit still and be quiet in church. About halfway through the sermon, she leaned over and she said, whispered to her son, If you don't be quiet, Pastor Charlton is going to lose his place and we'll have to start his sermon all over again. <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly enough, it worked. So if you need a reason to help your fidgety children be a little quieter, that's how you do it. But but you're not just enduring. You know, people, people aren't really focusing on the Lord. Now, they're listening for the, f- the the favorite words of the sermon. I know what your favorite words of the sermon are. I do. Finally. Am I right? Finally. But we we, we need to focus on the Lord. It's just linked to their devotion and falling down the word worshiped in the Greek is used to th- in the New Testament as a reference to worshiping one who is God. In fact, you find this same word used in Revelation quite a bit. The wise men came and worshiped Jesus as a child, but we worship him as the risen Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we're looking for him to return one day as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So Submitting our lives. You haven't worshiped unless you submit your life. Lord, I, I come before you. I honor you. I know who you are. Seeking Him, submitting to Him. But there's another thing that they're most famous for their gifts. So they are also a model of sharing and sacrificing. Now, these gifts they brought were not just token gifts. Gold was the The um, currency of the day, the most valuable currency. Frankincense was very expensive. It was a sweet smelling gum. It was a, a fragrance. Myrrh was a popular scented ointment. In fact, Mary in John chapter 11 verse 2 used myrrh to anoint the Lord's feet. And Also in John chapter 19 Nicodemus after Jesus died on the cross took his body and anointed him with myrrh preparing his body for burial So all three of these gifts were 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 very very important They were sacrificial. They were not offered under compulsion They were given on purpose Let me ask you something when you give Do you give on purpose, or do you just give out of compulsion? Oh, man, here comes the offering plate. I need to give something in there. Let me put something in there. Or do you come with the attitude, God, everything I own belongs to you. So I really can't give you. You can't put God on your Christmas list. What are you going to give God? What are you going to buy God? He's harder than buying for your dad. You know that? (laughs) (laughs) you have have a hard time buying for your dad or your mom? The thing is, God owns everything. And so we come and we say, Lord, I know everything I have belongs to you. So on purpose, I'm going to offer you and honor you with what you have already given me. There is no worship without giving. I didn't get any amens in the other services either about that You see we've got this attitude that worship's all about taking Give me give me give me give me give me But when you come to God, it's all about him. I want to honor you God I'm going to give you something and here's the paradox The paradox is that while he is honored by our gifts We are blessed beyond measure by the act of giving It's already his, but as I honor him, somehow God blesses in another way. And it may not always be financial, but God honors you. God can can keep your cars running longer than you ever dreamed. God can keep your washing machine from breaking down. God, God can bless you in so many ways, but a lot of people... A lot of people think, what, how little can I get by? If nobody sees me give, then I don't have to worry about it. We're pretty much selfish at heart, aren't we? We came into the world selfish. We came into the world taking, give me, give me, give me. But when you come to worship the Lord, you're going to honor him. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to share. I, I read about what someone called the world's stingiest man. Now, this guy was shopping for Christmas, And he didn't really want to buy a gift for a relative that was off in another city. He was thinking, how little can I get by and yet make it look like it's worth something? Sounds like us, doesn't it? I can tell I've made some of you mad now. I can tell. That's why I'm going to come in here every now and then. (laughs) And I know you'll be glad. (laughs) So here's what this guy did. He went in this gift shop and he saw this real pretty vase. Had fifty-dollar price tag on it. Now I guess the old, the higher the price gets, somewhere from a vase it becomes a vase. (laughs) You know, maybe when it's really expensive. Well, this was a vase, fifty dollars on there, but it was marked down. Had scratched it. It was marked down to two dollars, and the reason was the handle was broken off of it. So here's what he thought: I'm going to send this to my relative. He he took that up to the counter. He said I want you to ship this to my and gave the address his thinking was It's got $50 on the price tag when they open it up. It'll be broken, but they will think it got broken in the shipping But at least they're gonna know I spent $50 on them only he spent $2 He thought everything was perfect until after Christmas. He got a thank-you note and it said thank you so much for the vase it was so thoughtful of you to wrap each piece separately. <laughs> Didn't quite work out, did it? But how many times do we come to God and we say, well, Lord, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit, but I, I just can't give you very much. Y'all ever read the comics? You probably don't because you don't get a newspaper. You watch everything online now. I do get the Sunday paper. So I can read the comics. That's about my speed But for better or for worse The younger sister is Lizzie and she rejoices as she tells her big brother. Look, I've got nine dollars and eleven cents To spend on Christmas Well her older brother Michael being the brother that he is says you can't buy something for everyone with nine dollars and eleven cents But with supreme confidence Lizzie says well, I'm sure gonna try Michael answers sarcastically, "Well, there's sure going to be cheap presents." And then Lizzie says, "Nothing is cheap, Michael. If it costs all the money that you have." Well, I want you to know that there's nothing cheap about salvation, because it cost God His Son. It cost Jesus His life. He paid the price. God came with us. He became one of us to save us. And when all of the meals, the Christmas eel meals have been eaten, did you know that Jesus is still the bread of life that offers spiritual nourishment? And when you take all those Christmas lights down and put all those decorations up after Christmas, he's still the light of the world. And when the packages have been unwrapped and the papers discarded, he continues to be the ultimate gift to humanity. And so, folks, today, the greatest gift that God's ever given us, besides life, is salvation. You and I couldn't save ourselves. We'd never be good enough to save ourselves. And so God came to be with us. He became one of us. He put on skin the God-man, Jesus. But not only was God with us, but God was for us. Romans 5, 8 says, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He wants you. He's on your side. He, he wants to save you, wants to forgive you. And Holy Spirit lives in us now. God is in us. So if you don't know Jesus today, you haven't experienced the greatest gift that God's ever given A lot of us have sat through many, many worship services. wish I could tell you that I had worshiped in every one of them, but I haven't. There been times, you know, I've been sitting in the chair, but my mind's been going other places, seeing who's there and thinking about all the stuff I've got to do and not focusing on the Lord. I pray that at this Christmas time, you begin to focus on who God is and who you are and your relationship with him and that you submit your life to him. And that you give to him and his kingdom and his work every penny that you give is to be used to further his kingdom the fact is Lord I give you my life I give you my talents I give you my abilities I give you my time what is it that God would have you to do today would you bow your heads with me as we pray Heavenly Father You'll have to forgive us. We're asking you to forgive us for the times that we have come to worship and we've done anything but that. We've been so preoccupied with everything around us that we haven't even focused on you. And so right now, Lord, we ask you to forgive us that we would help us to focus on you Forgive us for the times that we always think it's about us, how comfortable we are or how much we like something when we realize it's all about you. I lift up those who need Jesus as their Savior, that they might repent of their sin and turn from their sin and come to you today, Lord, asking and seeking your forgiveness because of what Jesus did on the cross. He died for our sin. He rose again. And, and Lord, we give our life to you. And I pray that people would respond to you today. That your children, the, the believers, would turn their hearts to honor and to worship you. And I pray that those without Jesus would commit their lives and receive the greatest gift they'll ever receive, and that's salvation through Jesus Christ. We pray for those that need a church. If this is the place you want them to come, I pray you'll send them. I pray for those you're calling out for special service to serve you full-time in whatever capacity. I pray for those that need to be baptized. Whatever the, 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 the decision is today, Lord, we pray that people might make it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcast. The goal of The Venue is to help you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus by being relational, helpful, hopeful, and real. Thanks again for listening to The Venue Podcast.